to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, as we continue to worship our awesome God through, through this. And let me ask you this question. You know that feeling when you are going to buy something? You know that excitement that comes up in your heart when you're like, yes, I'm going to get myself a new toy. I like toys. Uh, even when I was a kid, I liked actual toys, but now my toys are just more expensive. But uh, you know that feeling when you go and you're going to buy that new toy that you've been researching? Right? And, and you're like, that's, that's the one I'm going to get. And, and you buy it, and then you suddenly feel that instant feeling of regret. We call that buyer's remorse. And it's a real thing. You quickly buy that thing that you're so excited about, and then you get it home, you unwrap it, you unbox it, maybe hang it up, or you put it on, you play it, whatever it may be, and you, and you feel that feeling of, oh man, I just spent all the money that I've been saving up just for, for this, you kind of feel a little down, and you quickly begin to realize that that toy that you have been saving up or that item that you've been saving up for did not fill the hole that was in your life. It didn't satisfy you in the very way that you felt that you needed to be satisfied. It just didn't measure up. You were left wanting. See, in John 2, we see those who Jesus has called to follow, having, uh, having a break by attending this amazing wedding. And what happens here is simple, and it's very straightforward. But it's also incredibly thought-provoking as we begin to break down what is happening in, happening in this narrative uh, as we see who Jesus is and how Jesus has revealed himself. Jesus is attending a wedding the host runs out of wine for the party, which in that time was a big, big no-no. You don't want to run out of wine. Jesus' mother tells him of all this and, and asks that he would do something about it. And Jesus then asks for stone jars and gets them filled with water. The host then tells the bridegroom about how good the wine is. And this is the first of seven signs that we see throughout the gospel of John, of Jesus answering for us the very big question of who is Jesus. And just like what we talked about with our, with our catechism question, one of the answers to that is that he is our redeemer. But John answers that for us a little bit more. So if you got your Bibles, I'm going to be reading from John 2 verses 1 to 12, and it says this, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what, do I, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it, the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. 
but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his seven of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And this is the word of the Lord. So in this few, first few verses, first five verses, we see a lack of wine at a wedding. And in verse 1, it's on the third day, two days after Jesus' encounter with Nathaniel that we saw about just in the last week. And, and they begin to attend this wedding. And we see that uh, as Jesus, his disciples, his mothers, is probably someone who's close to them. Even to the point that the mother, Mary, may have had a little bit of a role in playing in, 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 in catering the wedding. Hence why she kind of goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, we're out of wine. So Jesus and his disciples are invited to this great feast. And in verse 3, we're finally introduced to the problem of this passage. And the problem that they think is that there is no wine. And on a quick note, when we're looking at this word in the Greek, it's not juice. It's actually fermented grapes, which means it's, it's wine. A, brev- a beverage that had alcohol in it. But there was an expectation from Mary to Jesus to do something right here and now. A wedding celebration could last as long as a week. Imagine going to a wedding and being there for a week. We just celebrated New Year's uh, Eve a couple days ago. And I remember sitting there with my family. It was 10 o'clock and I'm going, I'm done. I'm ready to go to bed. And I know I'm not the only one. Like, I, I've lost the interest of staying up until midnight a long time ago. And, uh, but here they are. They're having a, a celebration for a whole week. So they're, they're powering through. But a wedding celebration could last as long as a week. And the financial responsibility actually laid upon the groom uh, to run out of supplies was a huge embarrassment, especially in a society that was based upon shame. It was a shame-based society, and, and if you didn't provide all that is needed for the party, then how dare you? You'd be the talk of the town. And there's even some evidence that it could uh, get the groom into so much legal issues that they could, have had, uh, they could have had a lawsuit against them. It was that type of world that they lived in. Imagine that. I'm so glad I'm, I'm married and done. that I don't have to worry about this. But imagine being back then in the day, and, and you're getting married, and you're like, man, we better make sure that we got enough food and wine and stuff. I don't want to get sued. Right? This is the type of society that was in there. But why would Mary have an expectation of him to do something? Some may think it's about Mary's concern about the host's shame if they ran out of wine before the wedding was over. But John here, John the writer of the Gospel of John, he comes with this laser-like focus. It isn't upon what Mary felt, but on who Jesus is. And that's the important thing. When we're opening the Bible and we're reading, we are reading, we're coming face to face with God. The story is telling us something about who God is, about who Jesus is, not about the situation that's going on. God is revealing himself to us through his word. These are things that we need to understand. But in verse 4, Jesus comes and says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And I've always thought that that was kind of abrupt 
an abrupt statement. If I ever went to my mom and I said, Mom, woman, <laughs> woman, what does this have to do with me? Uh, kind of wouldn't go very well. But Jesus' words were, were kind of abrupt, but they weren't disrespectful. You got to think of language like we see in Judges eleven twelve, which says, Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And it's an interesting thought because in Catholic teaching and other beliefs, there is this such a strong devotion to Mary that says that she is the one that motivates Jesus to do something. And that's why they pray to Mary. They pray to Mary and they beseech Mary that Mary would go to Jesus and do something. It's a scary part that leads, uh, that leads to Mary being thought of like this co-redemptrix, uh, that they call it. Someone who is on par with Jesus. But don't miss the rebuke here by Jesus to his mom. It's important. This is the one time we see Mary trying to influence Jesus. But, it, but he is not, but Jesus is not under Mary's control. Not under her influence. See, Jesus answers Mary's request not because she is his mother, but as part of his work as the Messiah. Mary doesn't get any more authority to intervene in Jesus' work as a Savior. He is God. And you can't influence God. So, why would he be so abrupt with his mom? This leads, there's, there needs to be something bigger than the need for some wine, right? Like, why would Jesus come to his mom after his mom comes to him and be like, woman, what does that have to do with me? Why would he be so abrupt? Because he comes along and he says later, my hour has not yet come. Jesus is aware of his own timetable. And this isn't the time for a climatic public display. Even at the beginning, Jesus was there to be lifted, lifted up at the cross. But Jesus is saying, it's not there yet. This time has not come yet. And Jesus says that, that it is the will of the Father that is determining the timetable, not Mary. And Mary's response is also interesting. Verse 5, she comes and he says, His mother said to the servant, Do whatever he tells you. So the response to Jesus is that she simply trusts Jesus to figure it out. She's accepting Jesus' clarification of their relationship. His mother understands his response to imply that he is willing nonetheless to meet the immediate needs. In these few verses, in these first few, few verses, we see an interesting relationship between Mary and Jesus. And Mary's response is to just trust Jesus in the timetable that is laid at hand. And as we continue to move forward in, in, in verses 6 to 12, we see an abundance of life that is in Jesus. So bear with me as we walk through this. In verse 6, we see now there were six stone jars. I've actually seen these jars before. Uh, in college, I had the opportunity to go with my, my Old Testament pro, uh, professor, uh, Dr. Barker, actually, to go uh, up to the Museum of Civilization in Ottawa. And they had a whole display. And we saw those jars. They're not just like little jars. They're massive jars. Like I could fit in it. And they're big, and, and they're stone, which is very interesting. 
These jars were used for purification, which means that they were used to clean people. And we can look at Mark 7, verse 3 to see into that, which says this, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Something that we're learning even uh, in a pandemic. Uh, And it continues on holding to the traditions of their elders. See, each of these stone jars, just to kind of paint your picture with, with what is happening, you see it here, it says each of these jars holding 20 to 30 gallons. Six of these. We're looking at somewhere between 540 to 830 liters of water. That's a lot of water. And they were filled to the brim. Not just filled up, but filled to the brim. And You can picture a brim on a glass of water, right? And you fill it up and it's kind of bubbled over, right? Don't overlook the fact that these jars that were used to clean hands, they were part of the old covenant requirements of, of purification and cleanliness. And we need to keep asking ourselves, why would John put these details in there? What does this have to do with Jesus? What do we learn about who he is? And Jesus, in verse 7, he comes and he, he gives his command to fill the jar with water and then take some of that water and give it to the master of the feast. And John doesn't take time to show if Jesus was obeyed, but goes to the master's response. And this is an absolutely amazing thing. We can get, us, uh, get used to this, but let us think about this. Wonder about who Jesus is. There were six empty jugs. They filled it with water. And immediately they are turned into wine. And not just any wine, but the best wine. Do you see how Jesus' supplies are not left wanting, but are abundant? And you have to, and it's, and it's, and it's the good wine in verse 10, as it says. But you have to keep the good wine until now, he says. Uh, one of our members, Jim Lush, and I have talked about this often, every once in a while, as he parks out front here. And, and we've talked about this aspect of Jesus making wine. And it's not just good wine. I had to look this up, because I've never made wine in my life. So I had to look up how you make wine. And there was a WikiHow website about how to make wine. And it takes a long time. Even to make that cheap stuff that you make in your basement, it takes a long time to make wine. It could take months. But you think about the good wine that is out there. I'm not a wine connoisseur, so I don't understand any of that science. But you got to think about how long it takes to make good wine. And when you're opening a bottle from like the 1800s or whatever, and, and, and people are spending thousands of dollars for these bottles, it, it is absolutely amazing. But there's a whole process that we go through in order to make wine. And there's a, there's a key element that is needed in making wine. It's not water. It's grapes. But here Jesus comes along, and he takes water, and he transforms it into wine. And not just wine, but the best wine. You have to keep asking yourself, what are we learning about our Redeemer, our Savior, as we look on this? Remember, it's not about the wine, it's about Jesus. And how Jesus is showing himself to us in this passage. He is outside of time. He's the creator, as we see in in John 1, verses 1, verses 2 and 3. He is the one who created all things. He can transform water into wine. 
and in his abundance and who he is. And in verse 11, we see that this first of these signs, this is the first one that we will see. Jesus has turned water into wine, but John makes it clear that the supernatural transformation of water to wine is eclipsed by the broader redemptive historical implications of what has happened. Because he's rocketing our minds back to passages like in John 1, 14, which says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. But not only that, think about how the jars were filled to the rim. The jars that were used in the Old Covenant for purification ceremonies were made to to create the best of wine. Think back to John 1.17, which says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Christ, or what we see in John verse one, or chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. See, John shows this as a sign that speaks of a greater spiritual reality. Think about it. Just as the water is turned to wine, so for the Christian, salvation comes a transformational life. We are born again by the grace of Christ, changing us through God's mighty word. Jesus just willed that the water be turned. The same is with his disciples, who he has caused to be born again. The outcome is a transformation from being spiritually dead and non-responsive to God to being spiritually alive and responsive to God. Also think about this. These large stone jugs were filled to the brim. The great amounts of water that was in there, as Jesus asked the servants to fill it to the brim, just reflects about all of the amazing uh, grace of Christ, the fullness of Christ's grace. And this is contrast that is being painted between the limitations of the old covenant with these purifications and washing and cleanliness and the fullness of Jesus' grace. This miracle shows the transformation of the old order that was associated with Moses into the new through Jesus Christ. That Jesus has been made known by the Father. God gives grace upon grace. Like heaping it on. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Grace upon grace. Like like a plate full and and my ants just keep piling on food onto my plate. It's just heaping on and on. The law of Moses was a good gift that was given to Israel. And from its fulfillment, God gives the best wine of the new covenant of his covenant people. See, John calls this the first sign. And Jesus has turned water into wine, but John makes it clear that the supernatural transformation of water to wine is eclipsed by a broader redemptive historical implications for you and for me. The old covenant was a marriage between God and Israel. And at the wedding on the third day, the wine ran out. Don't overlook these little The abundance of life was not found in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant had been exhausted. Then Jesus tells the water 
tells that the water jars used for keeping the regulation of the old covenant are to be filled, pointing to the fulfillment of the allotment of time and intended purpose of the Old Testament, Old Covenant, sorry, and its purification rites was that it was to point to Jesus who was to fulfill it all. John does not call these supernatural things Jesus does mighty works as other gospel writers do. Calling them signs, John has carefully selected and framed his presentation to bring out the ways in which Jesus is affecting the shift of the ages, the movement from the old to the new, from water to wine. Do you see the abundance of Jesus that this is pointing to? And this is all done for that one purpose, as he says later on in verse 11, to manifest his glory. It's by this first sign that Jesus shows his glory. But his glory would be revealed at the greatest way on the cross and his resurrection and exaltation. As Jesus walked every step towards the cross from this moment on, it was a shadow, an action pointing to that glory that Christ died for her sins and rose again. See, what is interesting is that the glory wasn't even seen by the others who were there. The servants saw the signs, but they did not see the glory. The disciples' faith allowed them to see the glory behind the signs, and they put their faith in him. As we see, and his disciples believed in him. This is the response of Jesus' first sign. These are things that we need to think through and understand. This year, as we continue to think about, as we entered into this new year, as we entered into 2021, it's 2021. Does anyone else think that this is crazy? I do. It's 2021. I was actually thinking about it the other day that uh, I think it was Elon Musk who's talking about they want to colonize Mars by 2045. And I went, wait, that's not that far away. Uh, I could very well be alive for this, uh, which is very interesting. But this year, let us resolve to be amazed by our Savior. As we think about this passage and we think about the so what, what does this mean to, be, to, to us? that our God is able to pay the price for our sins. And we need to be asking ourselves, what are we resting in? Are we beholding the glory of our Savior? And as we move into this year, let us declare the glory of our Lord. See, a lack of wine at a wedding on the third day shows that the old covenant had been exhausted. But as Jesus fills the jars that were once used for that ceremonial cleaning, Jesus shows that he is the abundance of life. There is no lacking in Jesus. He, his grace is sufficient. So when we look, when we look at these accounts or any account of Jesus, what do we learn about who he is? When we read this first passage and the many to come, it is easy to just think of Jesus as some sort of moral teacher who does some great miracles of work. There's more here. At this first sign, we see that Jesus created all things. He has, made, he has power over the material universe. 
We see that he is the Messiah who has come to the fullness of time to bring in the long-awaited time of the Messiah, where wine will flow in in, in overwhelming abundance and the mountains will drip with the best wine of the joy of God's people. Think back to the story that we're just learning about with, with Daniel. As we were, as, as in, in, our, in our Bible project, in our gospel project video, and the visions that he had of, some, of an end times pointing us to a greater hope that we have in Jesus Christ where we will have this abundance, where the mountains will drip with the best wine for the joys of God's people. Again, let me ask you, who is Jesus? He is the one who takes what is meant for purification, these jugs, and provides a blessing through it. He is along, he, he alone can transform the daily purification rites by the power of his perfect life. Who is Jesus? He is not just a guest at our wedding, but the great eschatological bridegroom who makes us his bride by the cost of his life because he is our Redeemer. The example we see for husbands in Ephesians 5. Jesus is is the one who who clothes us with the wedding garments of his own righteousness. His righteousness was imputed upon us and prepares us for the great wedding feast banquet of the Lamb. Who is Jesus? He is the Lord of glory who calls us to believe in him and put our trust in him. This is what prompts our faith. It pushes us to worship our God and empowers love for God and our neighbor. What is the most satisfying thing you've ever experienced? When was that last time you went to the store to try and buy something and you kind of felt like it was going to satisfy? And maybe it did for a few moments. It was kind of left wanting in your life. Because it's only Jesus that can give abundance in our life. Nothing compares to what Jesus gives He calls us to believe in him and to put our trust in him because it is through Jesus Christ that you can have the abundance of life. See, when when we're looking at John, and we're looking at John 2, verses 1 to 12, we see God layering good gifts onto good gifts, bringing out the best at the right time to the gracious gift of the old covenant God has added grace upon grace the new that we see. See, Satan would want us to think, Satan suggests that God withhold good gifts from us, from his people. We see this in, in the garden. We see this as, as he's tempting Adam and, and Eve. They're getting them to doubt that God is good and that God is good all the time. Satan would have us doubt that God is good. And if, if I... Uh, and I would assume that many of us over this year or maybe over a few years have doubted God's goodness many, many, many times. Which is why it's so important to be able to get back into the word of God and to see that he is good. That he has given us grace upon grace to fight the lies that Satan would have us believe. Because we see here, Jesus makes the Father known by facilitating plentiful celebration at the wedding. He exposes Satan as a liar. The God of the Bible 
is revealed by his son, Jesus, to be one who ensures abundant wine for the wedding feast. This is more than a story about, Jesus, about how Jesus turned water into wine, but that how you can have life abundantly. It is through Jesus, it is through Jesus that you can have the abundance of life. Let us pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for who you are and what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would continue to worship you in spirit and truth, that we would reflect upon how you have blessed us uh, immensely through your son, Jesus Christ, who came and died for our sins. Lord, I pray that uh, when we reflect upon how Jesus turned water into wine, that we would see uh, how you have stacked upon grace uh, upon grace to us. And that that pushes to worship you. That pushes us out to love you and to love our neighbor. God, I pray for Noah. I pray that we would be a church that goes out and declares who you are to this broken world that desperately needs you. May we continue to worship you, both in spirit and truth. And amen.